Our reading this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests." While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered that the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of, of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and our city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their, sons, uh, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there were no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? 
And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for, um, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Uh, it's really good to be here. Keep your Bible open at Nehemiah 13. We're going to be, I think all the stuff will be on the screen, but keep your Bible open as we're going to just work our way through this chapter. Um, can I encourage you to bring your Bible to church? I say this in South all the time, and there's nothing wrong with the Bible on a phone or on a screen. It's still the Word of God. It's still, it's still uh, true and alive. But here's why I think it's better to have a Bible when you come to church. Because none of us leave the house without our phones, do we? It's second nature. But when we elect, when we choose to bring our Bible to church, what we're doing is we're, we're honoring God's Word. We're saying, I'm choosing to, to, to be in this and live in this today. So I encourage you to bring your Bible to church. And uh, I can challenge you like that because I'm leaving in about an hour's time. And so I can say whatever I want and I'll be away back over the lagging. So, um, <clears throat> yes. Before I start this morning, what I want to do is just um, thank you for uh, your prayers for Village South. I know you do pray for us, and, and it's easy to fall in this trap of thinking that we have East and South, but, but actually we're still a church plant, and we feel that tension of, of living as a church plant and, and lots of stuff that's still growing and developing. Um, so thank you for praying for us so faithfully. Um, I ask you one prayer request uh, over the Easter period. Yesterday, a team of volunteers gave out a thousand flyers for our partnership with the food bank. So we, we invite the, we, we partner with a food bank in the area and we invite the local community to come and donate as well. With that, they also got an invitation to church on, on Easter Sunday. So would you just pray for people to respond to that um, and come and, and hear the gospel? We did this at Easter and, and we had six people from the community came to our carol service um, and heard the gospel. And you're thinking, six? I was like, six? That's incredible. Um, so pray for seven people to come on Easter Sunday. Um, that would be great if you could just bear that in mind for us. Um, it's really good to be here. And I love that there's so many of you that I don't know. Um, the church is growing. Praise Jesus. Let me pray for us and we'll get into Nehemiah 13. Uh, Father, we thank you that your word is living. It's active. We thank you that you are speaking to us through your word this morning, you, you desire to speak to us. You want us to hear your voice. Father, we pray that, that just as uh, my uh, voice is carried to these people's ears on my breath, that so your word would be carried to our hearts on your breath, which is the Holy Spirit. Would your spirit work in us this morning to, to have an even greater vision of Jesus and to, to see your grace, to experience your grace, um, and to renew our love and our faith in you. We praise things for Jesus' glory. Amen. Um, we made it to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't know how long you've been coming here. I don't know if you've been here since the very start, but we started this a long time ago. So well done if you've been to every single sermon. That's got to be some kind of a record. We've done it. Um, and we've seen the people return all the way from exile in Babylon, which then became the Persian. They were gone so long that that government even changed. The country they were in uh, was invaded. And, and so they went to Babylon, came home from Persia. Um, we saw them rebuild the temple and establish worship again. We saw them rebuild the city walls, um, which was a kind of a big deal, as you know, as we've been going through Nehemiah. And we saw them begin to remember their identity as God's people and remember uh, and start putting into place all the ways that He had commanded them to live. And we finish now today on Ezra, or sorry, Nehemiah chapter 13. And it's kind of a weird chapter, isn't it? Like there were already some chuckles whenever uh, um, Caroline read. Um, I beat them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> he's threatening people. He's saying, uh, I will lay my hands on you. He's chasing them away. He's beating them. He's pulling out their hair. And what do we do with this? I heard uh, one pastor friend of mine, he um, likened at Nehemiah 13 to when you see uh, par a parent like disciplining their child in the supermarket, but in a really like, I've, I've lost it with you kind of way. And it's really awkward. And you don't know whether you should look at it or you don't know whether you should intervene or what do you do with this? It made me think of, um, remember when you were away and, and your mum said, wait till we get home. Did you ever get that? 
I got out all the time, and I'll tell you why, I don't mind sharing this with you, confession time, she would take me to the co-op in Balamina every Friday afternoon to get our groceries, and I would go along all the fridge, freeze, uh, fridge aisle and poke holes in all the cellophane wrappers on everything, packets of ham, cheese, whatever, just like, bah, 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 just busting the whole place up. Don't know why I did that. And often she'd be like, hey, wait till we get home. And then you're like, oh, no, not wait till we get home. Because then you have the dread, the fear, the whole way home. I hope she forgets. Hope she forgets. Hope we crash the car or something on the way home. And, uh, but what Nehemiah is doing here, he's not saying wait till we get home. He's like right there in the co-op fridge aisle, you know, like going way too hard on his children. There is no wait till we get home. So what do we do with this chapter? What do we do? Well, where, where we've left off in the story uh, kind of is a lot different to where we finish the story, isn't it, in Nehemiah 13? Because we've, we've seen that the people have read the law way back in chapter 8. They've, they've realized their wrongdoing, and then they make this commitment, this oath to say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to obey you. I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm going to follow you from now on. And then in chapter 12, we see the people gathered and grateful. They're, they're literally a, a whole city praise services, they walk around the walls. And the last thing we see is that the sound of their praise is heard far away. They're so worshipful that actually the sound of their worship becomes missional. But at the start of chapter 13, we learn that things haven't been that way. Nehemiah has been recalled to Babylon. He's had to go back to work in the government offices there, see the king, whatever it was he was doing. And we don't know how long he was gone for, but it was certainly a number of years. Maybe as many as 15 years he's been gone. And when he comes back, you ever seen that meme where like the, the dog comes in and the house is on fire? That's kind of what, he, what he's coming into. I had a French teacher in school, and, and, and every time he left the room, like it would, uh, Alan probably, we didn't see him school, he probably knows his teacher. Um, every time I, we left, or he left the room, we would just descend into like the last days of the Roman Empire or something. Like the place would not be on fire, but close to it. Deaths would be upside down, bags being thrown, everything. It was crazy. I don't know why, but this is what Nehemiah has come back into. You see, Nehemiah realizes that all the things they had committed to have been forgotten. They've completely neglected their worship of God. And so he is angry and he acts quickly and decisively. And so our, our, our job this morning is not to question, is he right or, or wrong in, in, in beating people and pulling out their hair? Hint, he's probably not that right in doing that. Um, but there is no wait till we get home. He acts decisively. And this chapter reveals to us our need for God to persistently intervene in our lives. It, it points us to the hope that we have in Jesus to make us new. Because the truth is that we can't walk this journey on our own. And here's what we're going to see this morning. Bear this in mind. We have a persistent need for God's ongoing renewal work in our hearts. We have a persistent need. How many of you are ready for heaven right now? And I don't mean like, oh, I'm so tired, I want to go to heaven. I don't mean that. I mean, how many of you are perfectly sanctified? I'm certainly not. My journey over here in a car proves that big time. We have a persistent and ongoing need for God's renewal work. And the first part of this is that uh, our opposition is persistent. We have a persistent need because our opposition is persistent. In verses 4 to 9, I think we'll have it on the screen. We see that Eliashib, the priest, who he would be put in charge over the chambers of the temple. So in the temple complex, you actually have not just one room like this, but probably, you know, you have different rooms and offices and all that kind of stuff. And, and he, Eli, Eliashib the priest, who was in charge of the temple complex, he puts this guy, Tobiah, in one of the large chambers. And he says, come and live in here. Now, what's happening? See, that name, Tobiah, might be familiar to you. Because way back in chapter 4 and 6, Tobiah was the one who was leading the opposition to the rebuilding work. In fact, this guy plotted to have Nehemiah murdered. And now he's living in the temple of God. This is like a moment in, the, uh, in a movie that you thought the bad guy was gone, but he's, he's come back. You're like, what are you doing here? How are you here? That we got rid of you. Listen, church, we have a real and personal enemy, and he is out to destroy you. 
His opposition work, to, his opposition to God's renewing work in your heart is real and it is persistent. Do you realize that we will always have opposition to what God is doing in our lives? This is a truth that we need to come to terms with. We have an enemy, he is real, he is personal, and he hates you. And you see what happened here, don't you? You see, the people had neglected their faithful worship. What actually we read in the first few verses of 4 to 9 of, of Nehemiah 13 is that, that they had actually stopped bringing the things into the temple necessary for worship. This room used to be used for storing the grain offering, storing the wood, all these things that were used for uh, the first fruits, used for, for temple worship. And this lack of worship had left an empty room in the temple. And it didn't take long for the enemy to weasel his way in. A lack of humble worship of God had allowed the enemy of God to move in. Do you see what I'm saying here? Church, if we neglect worship of God, of regularly offering our lives as worship to Him, it will leave space for the enemy to move in. The space that is vacated by worship will be filled. This room was supposed to be used for the worship of God, but because the people had neglected worshiping God, the enemy had come in and set up camp. And the lesson for us is don't leave room in your heart and in your life for the enemy to take up residence. If we aren't filling our lives with worship of God and service to Him, then the enemy will move in. He doesn't wait to be invited. He's not like a vampire. He doesn't need to be invited. He's invasive. He's cunning. He's tricky. He wants you to leave Jesus behind. And when we stop worshiping God, he finds his way in. And of course, Nehemiah is angry. He's angry because this matters, right? Building the wall was never about having a wall. Building the temple was never about just having a nice building to worship in. The whole return project, the whole renewal project, it was about restoring the people to right relationship and worship of God. All of what we've seen throughout this entire book was about bringing people back in to relation, relationship with God in worship of Him. Nehemiah is angry because the glory of God is at stake here. And so Nehemiah acts, and he acts out of anger. And, and I just want to be clear that, that anger isn't always a, a wrong or negative or bad emotion. Think of Jesus when he goes to the temple. Remember that story? Coming up to Easter, maybe you'll be reading that this week or next week. And, and he goes and he sees that his father's house, the place where that it should have been a house of prayer for all nations, that's what the Old Testament tells us the temple will be. And he sees people trading it and defiling it. He said, this is not worship of God. And he gets angry and he acts quickly and he acts decisively and he kicks them out. And the problem for us is that we, we, we tend to get angry about the wrong things, don't we? I know that I do. We get angry when our pride is, is, is damaged. We get angry when our comfort is threatened. We get angry when we feel attacked. But Ephesians 4, 26 says, be angry and do not sin. And I wonder, when is the last time you got angry about the sin in your life? When is the last time that you got angry with the enemy because he's consistently and persistently attacking you? As we consider the persistence of the opposition in our lives, we, know, need to know, we need to know that it's okay to hate sin. In fact, it's good and right to hate Satan, to hate the sin in our lives. You can be sure that he hates you. I had this conversation with someone in our church this week and I won't tell you what was going on, but there was something, and, and he, he had a really high moment sharing, their, sharing the gospel with someone in a deep and meaningful way, and they got home and, and had a massive bust up with their, with their, uh, with their um, spouse. And I just texted him, and I said, hey, you know why? Because the devil hates you, and he hates your marriage, and he hates that you're sharing the gospel. Be angry with him. But he wants to keep us angry at all the wrong things. He doesn't want us to be like Nehemiah. He wants to, to keep us dis distracted and therefore sinning by throwing up things that will make us wrongfully angry. That's why he's always bringing stupid drivers when I'm driving, right? Just keep me angry about the wrong and stupid things. It's obviously not my problem, guys. 
He will do everything in His power to keep you from making room in your life for Jesus, for making room in your life for worship, for making room in your life for mission. And He does this most often by putting things in your way that are the biggest triggers to make you angry at the wrong things. Listen, we need to throw them out. We need to tell them to get lost. We need to tell them that this house of my heart belongs to the Holy Spirit and nobody else. There's no room for you here. And, and you know what I find most troubling about, uh, I just realized that I normally preach with a timer on the back wall, so guys, we'll just see what happens here. <laughs> uh, uh, but what I find most troubling about what the uh, Israelites are doing in this chapter is exactly the same pattern that's in my life. Exactly the same pattern that's in our lives, isn't it? You see, they had stopped surrendering to God and worship, and the enemy had moved in and taken up residence. This is precisely the pattern of my life. Think about the areas of our lives that, that we don't want to surrender to God and worship, right? Maybe it's the parts of the Bible, uh, the Bible's teaching that you most struggle with. Maybe it's about money or gender or sexuality or whatever, and, and you know that you, you should surrender in obedience to what the Bible teaches, but you find it so hard Those are the areas where Satan will move in and set up shop, right? The areas that we don't just surrender and worship to Jesus. And maybe for some of us, you have these areas in your lives, and you've just kind of come to live with it. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, and you don't know what's right, but you just kind of, well, that's just how it is. Have you ever seen those videos of like turtles that have got stuck in a piece of plastic, and then their shells become all bent and twisted? A turtle doesn't want that, but this is what happens to us. You just kind of live with it. You live with the deformity of having this ingrained sin in your life. You're like, ah, it's okay. Like, I'll just live with it. But it doesn't have to be that way. Listen, Jesus rose from the dead so you could be free. So surrender to God and worship. Every area of your life, kick Satan out. I'll tell you this, there is no better weapon against the enemy than worship of God. We worship him, Satan runs fleeing. They don't want to know what to do with that. Our opposition is persistent. Let's move on. The second thing we see, uh, why we need this persistent, renewing work of God in our lives is because our struggle with sin is persistent. Our struggle with sin is persistent. We all have this internal struggle, don't we? We have an, an external persistent opposition, but, but we also have this internal persistent struggle. Remember back in chapter 10? If you don't, I'll, I'll refresh you. You see, the people made a covenant to come back to God and obey His laws. I mean, this is probably like me once a week. Lord, I'm so sorry. I'll never do that again. Like, I'm, I'm living for you now. <laughs> All the time. They had their… I, I, when I was teaching that chapter, I called it like drawing a line in the sand, you know? Done. They were done from running away from God. They were going to keep their side of the covenant. And they, they saw their sin and they made this oath. And, and they were no longer going to marry people from other nations. They were, no longer, they were going to start obeying the Sabbath. And they were going to start restoring proper temple worship. And what I find interesting is that it's exactly these three things that they've got, gone back on. Look at verse 10 in chapter 13. Nehemiah says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The Levites are the tribe of priests, set apart like the pastors in the church to, to full-time work for the worship of God. And the people had pledged not to neglect the work of the temple. And then you see what's happening. The temple worship has been neglected so that the Levites and the singers have had to go and get jobs in the fields because there's no way of supporting them anymore. Nobody's worshiping God. So the pastors and the staff and the worship team have had to go get jobs elsewhere. They've given up on the church gathering, right? They've given up on missional community. It's no longer part of their lives. Look at verse 15. In those days I saw Judah... I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. You see, they had pledged to obey the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to the people to rest on God's work for them. 
And now they've totally gone back on that. You know, this is like when we don't rest on the finished work of Jesus. That's our Sabbath. And we don't rest on the finished work of Jesus. We try to work for our own salvation or work for the approval of others. Look at verses 23 to 24. In those days days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, I'm sure that you, you guys have covered this before, that the commands to not intermarry with other nations, it's not a racial thing at all. It's a holiness thing. They have, and we see that the negative effects which helped explain the rule here. They've rejected God's law. They've intermarried. And now there is a whole generation of children who doesn't even speak the language of God's people. That means that they do not know God's story. They don't know God's story of salvation through the the, uh, Exodus and through the Red Sea and all of that. They don't know it. They've abandoned living holy lives. They just blend in with the culture around them. And it seems like the people have short memories of the faithfulness of God. How, How is it that they've been through all that they've been through? building the temple and building the walls, all the opposition even, they've seen God be faithful, haven't they? His provision. Like you can't, you, can't even put a num- you can't even put a number on the financial provision that God has given them over the last hundred years. And how have they gone through all this and still forgotten what God has done? Look at verse 25 to 27. This is um, Nehemiah's response. They've forgotten, they've forgotten to God's holiness. They've, they, they're, they're, they've stopped relying on God's provision, and they've neglected worship of God. And so Nehemiah says, And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And now listen, I just want to pause there for a second. This is what we call, uh, this is what you call in theology, a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text, okay? This is saying, this is what happened. It's not saying, go and do this. Just in case there's somebody on your MC or, or something like that, and you're like, hey, you need to tighten up in this area in your life, and you start beating, you know, the stuffing out of them, or you start pulling out their hair, um, or anything, anything like that. It's not like that. It's descriptive. This is what he has done. And he says, and I made, an oath, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to take their sons, or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. And then he, what does he do? He says, remember what happened, guys. Look at this. Verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among him, the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. You know what it should say? It should say, his love of women made him sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? You see the weight with which Nehemiah is zealous? for the honor and glory of God. He's extremely serious about the holiness and the worship of people. He's saying, remember how Solomon went down this road before and how it didn't pan out for him. Remember the mistakes of the past and don't be doomed to, come to repeat them. But this is what we do, isn't it? Because this struggle with our sin is, is persistent. Our, our, our memory of God's faithfulness in our lives is, is short, isn't it? That thing where you're driving down the road and then all of a sudden you can't remember the last five miles. You're like, how did I get here? That's like sin in our lives. We're like, how did I end up doing this thing again? This is what happens when we're not on our guard against the persistence of the sin in our own hearts. We wake up and we think, how have I got here again? And then we end up drawing another line in the sand and we end up repenting and we end up saying, I promise I'll never uh, do this again. And then what happens? We do it again. Church, we need to be on our guard. The lure of sin is ever-present, and we all feel this way, don't we? Man, I do. The lure of not resting on the finished work of Jesus. It's easy to get stuck in a cycle of legalism and and working for the approval of God and, and working for the approval of others instead of just saying, Jesus paid it all. 
The lure of not honoring the church is strong. It's, it's so easy to give up on, on being at the gathering like this or to, or to give up on missional community. I'm, I'm, I'm so busy. Like, I've got kids and I've, I've got this going on, that going on. And, and I don't really, you know, I'll, I'll be in missional community later on. I've got enough problems on my own. I can't really be serving people in the church. When are people going to serve me for a while? It's easy to think that you can dip in and out of church or the lure of, of, of even not living generously, not bringing those first fruits into the store in the temple. It's easy to let your guard down and become selfish. Listen, I worked hard for this money. I deserve that holiday this year. So I'll get a little less. Or, or the, the, the cost of living pinch, the, the, the Christ, it's, it's real. And so you go, I, I can't give. Church, we need to be on our guard against the persistence of our internal struggle with sin. It's constant. And I say this with sympathy and empathy because I know what it's like. I know that I feel that internal struggle too. We all do. We have a consistent need to fight the sin in our lives. Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul puts it this way, put to death what is earthly in you. And we're going to tell you now how we do that. It's having the, per the persistent presence of Jesus in your life. It's surrendering our lives to Him. It's not letting the, the enemy sneak in because our lives are given over to Him in worship. I said it before and I'll say it again. There's nothing that drives sin out of your life. There's nothing that drives the enemy out of your life like worshiping God. Brothers and sisters, just as Nehemiah was pleading with the people to, to put God at the center of their lives, I want to plead with all of us in this room to put God at the center of our lives. You see, the Old Testament people were called by God to be a light to the nations, to, to represent God and, and to be a blessing to the people all around them. And we, the church, have the same calling. I'm so excited about the, the safe families thing. Isn't that so cool? Guys, get involved in that. Be a light to the nations. Actually, just driving, uh, uh, driving up the Newton Arch Road or the Albert Bridge Road this morning, I was like, man, the Village East is on the, literally on the, the, the doorstep of one of the poorest communities in the UK. You, that's true, by the way. Inner City East Belfast, one of the poorest communities in, East Bel uh, in the UK. Be a light. But we cannot do this if God is not at the center of our lives. We just can't. We can't draw people to Jesus if he's not at the center of our own lives. We need to put away sin. We need to clear out the sin that has taken up residence in our own hearts. We need to pursue holiness and righteousness by living lives of worship to God. And it's through this that we can fulfill the calling that he has given to us. You know, it's very difficult to convince somebody that, that a healthy diet and lots of exercise is good for you if all you do sit on the sofa and eat McDonald's and buns, right? That's why I don't go around telling people to eat healthy and do exercise. <laughs> but in the same way, it's very, we, we can't show people the grace and goodness of Jesus if we ourselves are not living in the grace and goodness of Jesus. And it's not like that's a bad thing to do. I mean, exercise and diet, get in the bin. But living in the grace and goodness of Jesus Man, it's, it's like saying, hey, here's something you have to do, but actually it's the best thing, it's the most freeing thing, and it's the most amazing thing. Do it. It's an invitation. It's not a command. It's not our... Uh, it, well, what I would say is that sometimes we think it's our job to fix the culture, don't we? We get so caught up in the hot-button topics, and, and we can find ourselves consumed by the sin out there, Right? the sexuality and the gender stuff and the marriage and all that stuff that is going on out there in the world. And we do this without thinking on ourselves. We can focus on the sin out there without recognizing the sin in here and saying, I need to repent. Actually, my heart has become hard. Actually, that bit of my heart is like the, the, the turtle shell. It's all twisted and deformed. I need to kick Satan out. I need to get rid of the sin. I need to let worship God in that area of my life. But what would it look like for us to be a people who are deeply repentant constantly of the own sin in our lives? Just saying, hey, Jesus, I need you just as much today as I did the day I first believed in you. 
to live humbly and recognize that we are sinful. I, one of my best friends, he just says, he's like, he always says this, he's like, look, I'm just, I'm just relying on, on the grace of Jesus. That's all I have to tell people. And I was like, yep, that's it. And he's a really good evangelist because of that. I'm relying on the grace of Jesus. Not you need to rely on the grace of Jesus. And I'm not saying we don't call stuff out. Of course we do. That's one of the ways that we are light. When these things come up, of course we confront them and we say, actually, Jesus gives us a better way. But we do this humbly and lovingly saying, I'm a sinner, but the grace of Jesus has set me free. And I'm just daily relying on him. Part of our vision statement and I really do need to move, I assume, I, I literally know, I could have been up here for two hours already, I don't know, 20 minutes, who knows. But I need to move on, but I want to talk about this for a little second. Part of our vision statement for, for Village, East and South, is joining God in the renewal of all things, okay? We are a community of people who love Jesus, each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. We believe that God is in the, in, in the business of renewing His creation, restoring it in all its glory. And that renewing work begins in and continues in us. That renewing work is persistent because God is renewing all things. And then out of that, we can be a people who are eager and willing to, to hold out that Jesus that we know, that we love, to the world, to allow Him to speak into the culture, to, to not share our faith but to share a person. I met with a guy last week um, uh, who, who, who isn't a Christian yet, and he had some questions. And I said, look, I don't want to share my faith with you because my faith is like up and down. And actually, it's probably only a little bit up and a, a big bit down. It's up and down. But I want to share with you Jesus. To say, listen, I know the one who is able to change and heal the parts of your life that you might not even think are possible to heal and might not even think are in need of changing. And this is when we will start to see our city change, to see our friends and neighbors and colleagues transformed. When we, re when we realize this, the, the persistent struggle with sin is real and ongoing, and we say, listen, Jesus, we're just daily relying on you. I'm just daily relying on you. Change me, renew me. Opposition is persistent. Our own sin is persistent. But here's the final one. God's renewing work is persistent. Nehemiah ends with a sense of anticlimax, doesn't it? It's like, what? Because for a minute there, you're like, oh, we're getting there. Maybe this is it. Like the people are, like they're, they're in the temple. The, the city's being built. They're walking around the walls. They're praising God. They're even being a light to the nations. You're like, wow, is this it? And then Nehemiah comes back to the house on fire, and you're like, well, where's the hope? What's going on, guys? Look at verses 30 to 31 at the very end of the chapter. Nehemiah says, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the, the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Nehemiah comes to them. He comes to them. He sees their disobedience, their sin, and he cleanses them, and he provides for them what they had failed to do. He provides the wood for the offerings. He lays down his own wealth for their sake. Even though it wasn't his fault, he took their failure on as his responsibility. Does this sound familiar? It should, because what we see in Nehemiah is a foretaste of the, the greater story that God is working in and through his people. A story that would ultimately be completed in Jesus. You see, opposition is persistent. Our sin is persistent. But God is even more persistent. You think God is done with you yet? And I want us to remember this. As we feel the weight of the temptations to fall away and give up on God and neglect the church and reject holiness and be selfish with our money and allow the enemy to set up shop in our hearts, as we feel the weight of all these things pulling on us tomorrow, remember that God's renewing work is more persistent than your sin. One of my, uh, I, I love, I, I can't wait to meet him someday, and I'm just going to be like nerding out for like a million years, so that'll be like a day, and it'll be fine. But in heaven, I'm going to talk to Richard Sibbs. He's one of the guys I'm going to go to first. And um, he'll be like, who are you? And I'll be like, I'm like your biggest fan. 
And, uh, but he, if you don't know who he is, go and look him up. And he, he was a Puritan back in the 17th century. And he said that the, probably one of the best lines ever written in the English language, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Wow. Through our repeated fears and failures and sin and disobedient, God, God's renewing work is persistent. See, the events of Ezra and Nehemiah are the last recorded historical events in the Old Testament. So in the Hebrew Bible, these are the last books. If it was chronological, this is the last thing that happened. The last thing in the Old Testament is a massive anticlimax. There's a 400-year gap after these events to the coming of Christ, and we're meant to bridge that gap with Jesus. All the unfinished hope, all the longing, all the need for renewal, all the need for a permanent resolution to the opposition and the sin in our lives is fulfilled in Jesus. When this tiny baby is born, when he grew up and when he died on the cross and then came out of the tomb, all that is fulfilled. What Nehemiah does for God's people uh, imperfectly, God would soon do perfectly through the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. The fulfillment of God's promises in Nehemiah became God himself took on human form, not just so he could be an even better leader than Nehemiah, even though he was, but so he could pay the once and for all penalty for our sin, our persistent sin, past, present, and future. That ongoing persistent struggle with sin, done, paid for. But not only that, that's what he did when he died, but when he came back to life, that's what my kids talk about, the resurrection, I love it, Jesus came back to life. He did, of course he did. He came back to life when he was raised from the dead. He defeated that persistent enemy. What? Jesus is the leader that Nehemiah could never be. He's the one who has given us victory over our enemy and, and the opposition. And he's also paid the price for our sin. The writer of Hebrews knew this. He, he, he speaks of this in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2 when he's talking about this persistent and ongoing need for God's renewing work. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Nehemiah is one of those witnesses, by the way, so is Richard Sibbs and many others. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. See that? Dealing with our sin. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he says, here's how you do that. Looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, and I went... King James there, the author, that's my old background. Um, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's speaking to Christians. This is written to the redeemed people of God, people who are running the race, facing opposition of the enemy, struggling with the sin within. And he says, look to Jesus. The gospel isn't just the message that saves us. It's, it's, it's the message that we live by. God's renewing work in us is persistent, and God is not finished with you yet. You know how I know that? Because if God had, fin- had finished with you, uh, either you would be in heaven, or Jesus would have returned. He would either have called you home, or Jesus would have returned. That's how I know God is not finished with us in this room yet. Don't, hoping that no one dies right now, by the way. He's not finished with you yet. He's, he's renewing us day by day, step by step, becoming a little bit more like Jesus. And how will we ever become like him if we aren't like Hebrews 12, looking to him? You know, it's really hard to build a jigsaw puzzle if, without the picture on the box, isn't it? You, you don't take, the, you don't take the, the lid off the, the box and throw it away and empty all the pieces out and then go, let's get to work. No, you don't do that. Well, maybe you do if you're insane, but you actually keep the picture in front of you. Like if you're like me, you're like looking at it every two seconds. You gradually, piece by piece, the picture's coming together. And as you build that puzzle, you know what happens? You become more familiar with the picture and you can see more details. It's through continually and persistently looking at the picture on the box that the jigsaw is finally complete. So let's keep looking to Jesus. And here's the good news. We do have this persistent need for God's renewing work in us, and we're going to do that through looking at Jesus, but God has promised to finish the work, right? There is no ending to Nehemiah. 
But we have that ending because of Jesus. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. Oh, one day you're going to wake up and you're not going to feel like you're struggling with the same old sin or the same anxiety, the same tiredness, or the same impatience. You're not going to be struggling with those things anymore. One day you're going to wake up and there will be no temptation from the enemy. That's our finish line. This is what God has promised to complete in those who belong to Jesus. He will complete that renewing work. And he's going to keep it going until then. That's our finish line. That's what we're aiming for, guys. And this is why, just as I finish, I want to, I want to draw our attention to the, the final words of Nehemiah. Look at the end of verse 31 again. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. His prayer is a simple one, isn't it? Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And it's not the first time he's prayed that, prayed that prayer in this chapter. Um, in verse 14, he says, Remember me, O my God. In verse 22, he says, Remember this in my favor, O my God. In verse 29, he says, Remember them, O my God. Remember the people. Four times in chapter 13, Nehemiah asks Yahweh, the God of heaven, to remember. And when we see this idea of God remembering elsewhere in Scripture, you know what it means? It means God's intervention. You see, this isn't just a prayer to asking God to call something to mind. This is not just Nehemiah saying, hey, remember all the good things I've done? This is, God, this is Nehemiah praying that God would intervene. This is Nehemiah praying a prayer of reliance on God and that he can only do this if God intervenes. He knows that God's ongoing renewing work it only comes through God doing it, through God intervening. Remember and intervene. And if we are to persevere through the persistence of opposition, through the ongoing persistent struggle of our sin, then it's through relying on the intervention of God. Being made perfect, more like Jesus, sanctified. It's a journey of daily reliance on God's intervention in our lives. So let me finish here. I wonder when the last time was that you asked God to remember you. Do you need to respond to this this morning? Is there stuff in your life that, that you need to just say, Lord, I, I haven't given, I, I've been holding on to this area of, 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 my, of, of my life and I don't want to give it to you and, and now I know I need to give it to you. Do you, do you need to just re-rely on God's intervention in your life? Do you need a fresh look to Jesus? Because asking God to remember you is, is the same as is looking to Jesus. Did you know this? We, we ask God to remember us and he points us to Jesus. When we look to Jesus, we realize that it's through Jesus that God remembers us. Remember the thief on the cross coming up to Easter again? Luke 23 tells of uh, when Jesus is crucified, there's, there's two criminals crucified on either side. And one of them mocks Jesus. The other one humbly, realizing who this man in the middle cross is, he says, Jesus, remember me when, I come in, when you come into your kingdom. You see, he knew who he was. And he knew that his only hope of salvation in that hopeless situation was that the Lord Jesus would remember him. So with his dying breath, he threw his lot in with Jesus, and he says, Jesus, remember me. And how did Jesus respond? He said, truly, I'm saying to you, truly, when Jesus says truly, it is truly, today you'll be with me in paradise. Listen, Jesus remembered you when he hung on the cross. It was for you that he was hanging there. It was for you that he died. He remembered you on the cross so that when you say, remember me, oh my God. God says, look at the cross. I have remembered you. I remembered you. Jesus intervened in my life, and God says, look at the cross. I am. I have intervened in your life. As he hung on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God so that when we ask him to, God remembers us. And listen, maybe you've never looked to Jesus. Maybe uh, you, you've never in any sincere or real way asked God to remember you. Uh, maybe you've heard this message over and over and over again. Look to Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. 
Why don't you pray that prayer today? Sincerely, remember me for good, oh my God. Can I urge you to let this be the day that you look to Jesus and see him hanging on the cross and, and, and see how, how God has remembered you, see how he has intervened for you, and just trust him and receive that offer of eternal life that comes through him. Um, I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up again and as they come up, we're just going to take a few moments in silence just to reflect on this. Maybe you feel that pull today, the invitation. If you feel any of the things I'm about to describe, that's the Holy Spirit working on you, by the way. Give in to it. Worship God. Maybe you feel that I really need to take a fresh look at Jesus because there's some parts of my life that I haven't, I've let the enemy come in. Or maybe you've never trusted in him before and you feel like that, I feel that pull. That's the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, just give in to it and let, let him forgive you, let him redeem you. Let's just take a few moments now to just sincerely pray that prayer of Nehemiah. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are working in our lives, that you have intervened in our lives through Jesus. I pray for anyone, all of us this morning, who feel that draw to respond, that, Lord, you would allow us just to surrender to you, um, yeah, just to pray that prayer with sincerity. Remember me, oh my God. Holy Spirit, would you give us a fresh look to Jesus this morning? to see him hanging on the cross, to see him there for our sin. So that all the guilt that we feel of not being very good Christians or all the anxiety that we feel or all the worry we feel or all the, this, that, and the other, Lord, that that, that that was nailed to the cross with him. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for that. Yeah, Father, I pray that this would be a moment where you would extend your grace in real ways to those who need it for the first time. Spirit, do among us what only you can do, myself included, the band included, the pastors included, everyone. Let us surrender to you, Lord, in real ways. Yeah, remove the sin that, is, that has been entangled in us for so many years. We ask that you would do this work among us. And Lord, as we come to your table uh, and we, 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 we taste the bread and we taste the wine, would we remember that you have remembered us through this? Will we look to you once again and receive your grace and receive your mercy and your goodness? Thank you, Jesus, that there is more grace in you than there is sin in us. Thank you for these elements that we're about to take. In Jesus' name, amen.